right, if you take your Bibles this evening, turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. <clears throat> Last time we looked at the first part of faithfulness to failure. We looked at the faithfulness part of Noah. We looked at the propagation of life, <clears throat> the preciousness of blood, the price for murder, and the promises of God. Tonight we want to continue on here in Genesis chapter 9 talking about the failure part. Faithfulness to failure. Uh, and uh, so this is really the fifth point of the uh, points that we uh, started last week. And so that's why number five there is the problem with wine. The problem with wine. Now as you read the Bible you find its heroes are faithfully depicted, whether it is their successes or their sins. Uh, God always paints human nature in its true colors. God exalts the successes of men, and He exposes the sins of men. Uh, he gives both the bright spots and the dark blots of uh, its characters. Uh, it complements... The Bible complements the successes and condemns the sins. And the honesty of the Bible reminds us that there's no person that is not capable of making a mistake. There were, I heard where there were members of a volunteer fire department that were so proud of their expensive new jaws of life that they held a very special demonstration to show how it could cut into an automobile and rescue people trapped inside. And there was a very appreciative crowd that uh, looked on, and two firefighters quickly ripped open the door of a 1966 Buick. They pulled its steering wheel through the windshield and knocked out all of its windows. And at that point, there was a voice that cried out, Hey, what have you done to my car? The man was absolutely livid, reported one onlooker, and he had good reason to be upset. The firefighters, in their enthusiasm, had cut up the wrong car. And so their chief promised that the department would pay the owner for the loss of his car, and he said, it was just a mistake. It was just a mistake. You know, many times there are mistakes made. There are mistakes in written material which uh, have not been proofread. Sometimes, more often than not, that happens in our bulletin. Maybe you've caught some some errors. My wife especially has a keen eye for finding errors in spelling and grammar. Uh, we had a pastor friend who uh, did a quite a bit of a publishing of books and using the self-publishing method that's popular today. It's much more uh, or less expensive to do it that way. And we would read his books and we would find many errors in spelling and grammar. Uh, I read about one, uh, someone that published a cookbook and it contains several significant errors. Page 95, line 14, says exactly 12 minutes, which should have read exactly 12 seconds. There is a difference, you know. Uh, page 120, last line, said spoon the floor, when it should have said spoon the flour. And then one other one uh, page said skim off the meat, when it should have said skim off the fat. We know you need to be careful not to have those kind of mistakes, especially in a cookbook. Uh, a little mistake can really ruin a recipe. Now, I wish I could say that our mistakes are limited to a few typos. 
But you know what? Unfortunately, sometimes our mistakes are far more serious. Uh, For more than three chapters here, we have been reading about a man who walked with God for a hundred years. But in the final verses of his life, we see that uh, what's well, what started well, didn't end well. We read here in chapter 9 and verse 20 and verse 21, it says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken and was uncovered within his tent. Here we're going to see Noah's sin and his shame. Now after the flood, the Bible says that Noah started farming, engaging in husbandry. That's what that uh, word is referring to. He became a farmer, uh, a planter. He planted a vineyard. And then he became drunk from the wine that he produced from it. Now this is the first mention of wine in the Bible. It's associated with sin and shame and a curse. Now, if we remember our rules of interpretation, first mention principle, the first time something is mentioned, usually carries the meaning throughout the Bible in most cases. And uh, this is actually the first example of drunkenness in the Bible. Now, Noah's sin was twofold. First, there is intemperance. Uh, We see Noah getting drunk. Secondly, there is immorality. The word uncovered here in verse 22 seems to suggest some act of immorality. The tense of the word seems to suggest, suggest that this was a deliberate choice. Here's a man who walked with God committing a terrible sin. And Noah let his guard down and Satan took advantage of the situation. Now when wine ferments, it decays, leavens, or breaks down, and this is what happened to Noah. Noah broke down physically, morally, and spiritually, and Noah wasn't caught by surprise by the effects of the wine. Again, this word uncovered indicates this truth, and also the word the before wine, the word T-H-E, indicates that Noah was familiar with the use and the treatment of the grape. Drunkenness leads to sensuality. And there are a number of other examples of this in the Old Testament as well. Now, before we go on with this text concerning Noah's drunkenness, we want to talk a little bit about wine in the Scriptures. Is wine condemned or condoned in the Bible? No doubt you've heard people using uh, or defending the use of alcoholic beverages because they drank wine in the Bible. So it must be okay. Jesus turned the water into wine. Paul said, take wine for your stomach's sake. Now, so it must be okay. Well, the confusion comes from the use of the word wine in the Bible. And I'm going to give you the abridged study tonight. I'm not going to give this an exhaustive study, but uh, uh, we could spend a long time and a great deal of time talking about this particular subject. But notice some of the words for wine in the Bible. Now, I've given to you uh, some of those words in their uh, Hebrew and the Greek and what they mean. A study of the words for wine and strong drink and the context of their usage in the verse will help determine whether it was juice or fermented wine. The first Hebrew word there 
uh, yayin uh, is a word that was used for fermented wine. Uh, it was uh, used 135 times in the Bible. It's associated with drunkenness about 30 times. It's condemned in about half of those verses it's used, and it was prohibited to the Nazarites. We find that Daniel refused the king's wine in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 in this usage. The use of yayin in making drink offering did not support the partaking of the wine. This offering was uh, uh, drunk or it was, it was not drunk or it was diluted. Uh, the drink offering was poured out like the blood at the foot of the altar in the book of Leviticus. Pouring the wine at the morning and the evening sacrifice was a signal for the priest and the Levites to begin songs and praises to the Lord. Uh, so there's that uh, one usage of, uh, of this particular word, wine. It's the word yayin in uh, the Hebrew. There's also tirosh, which means fresh or new wine. It's not fermented. It's grape juice. Tyrosh is grape juice. It's used about 38 times in the Bible. It's used as wine of the first fruit, fresh from the harvest, about 11 times. 17 times it is used as a grain oil or natural products of the field. It implies grape juice. In three verses, it's described as filling the presses with freshly pressed grape juice. It's still in the cluster of grapes in Isaiah chapter 65. And only one place is this word associated with wickedness, and that is in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 11. There's a third Hebrew word, it's shikar, which means strong drink. This word applies to all fermented drinks except uh, grape juice. And the word occurs 22 times, it's associated with yayin in all but one case. It's condemned in 19 of the 22 verses it occurs. And then we go to the New Testament, we find the word oinos. Oinos is the word, uh, Greek word for wine, and it can be either fermented or grape juice. Uh, it's translated wine or grape juice. And the meaning is determined by the context of the verse. Now, I've uh, hammered this idea of context away uh, uh, a great deal lately, but I think it's so important. And it's very, very important here in this particular uh, uh, realm. Now notice some principles concerning wine. First of all, the word wine in the Bible is a generic term. It's a generic term. Sometimes it means just grape juice. Sometimes it means alcoholic beverage, but it's a generic term. Secondly, the context will always show the meaning. The context will always show the meaning. When wine refers to alcoholic beverages, God discusses the bad effects of it and warns against it. An example is here in our text of Genesis chapter 9 and Noah's experience after the flood. Again, in verse 21, And he drank the, uh, of the wine and was drunken. That clearly refers to an alcoholic beverage. In Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, it speaks the same thing when it warns us, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Alcoholic wine is deceptive, but how? Well, in the very way that people are advocating today by saying, well, you know, drink a little bit just won't hurt you. 
You know, everyone admits that drinking too much is bad, don't they? Even the liquor companies tell us in their advertisements, uh, uh, use this product responsibly or don't drink and drive. It's always kind of an uh, uh, amazing thing to see that at the end of the commercial there for, for uh, their alcoholic beverage. And uh, yet they insist that a small amount is okay. However, this is the very thing that is so deceptive. Who knows how little to drink? Experts tell us that each person is different. What may be little for you may be too much for me. What, and, and so uh, it, it takes an ounce to affect one while more is necessary for another. Uh, the same person will react to alcohol differently depending upon the amount of food they've had, among other things. And so the idea, a little bit won't hurt, is deceptive, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 30 and 31 refers to alcoholic wine because it tells us in the previous verse that those who drink it have woe and they have sorrow and contentions and babblings and wounds without cause and redness of eyes. What a graphic description of those who tarry long, as the Bible says, at alcoholism. Verses 32 through 35 continue that same description. You take and read that sometime. If you haven't uh, read it lately, read it again. And you notice the context always is, makes it very clear that this is an alcoholic beverage and it's not good. If wine may mean fresh grape juice or alcohol, how can we know which is intended? Well, again, the context determines the meaning. We can tell when wine means fresh grape juice and when it means alcoholic beverage by reading the context, just as we've done in the previous paragraphs there. But notice here, uh, thirdly, uh, Scripture warns against the drinking of alcoholic wine. Scripture warns against it. Uh, the Bible is consistent on this, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, we've already uh, mentioned Proverbs chapter 20 and, verse, and chapter 23. There are good examples of scriptural warnings about the consuming of alcohol. Proverbs 23.32 says, At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Verse 33 shows that it will cause one to look at strange women. That is, uh, one that's not your wife. And to say perverse things or things which uh, uh, you wouldn't say if you were sober. Verse 34 predicts that it will cause death, such as drowning or loneliness, or such as lying on the top of a mast. Uh, verse 35 warns against numbness. When it says, they have beat me and I felt it not. That's numbness. It's caused by alcohol. And it talks about addiction. When shall I awake? I shall seek it again. Can't get along without it. And then Proverbs 31, verse 4 and 5 teaches, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. You see, the danger is quite obvious concerning the use of alcohol. By the way, in Proverbs chapter 31, Verse 6 and 7, I think it probably gives us the only legitimate use for use of alcoholic wine in the Scripture. 
Now, I'm for total abstinence, from, for, uh, and I believe the Bible teaches that, but if there is any legitimate use, it's probably given to us in that per particular passage. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. Are you ready to perish? Are you ready to die? And wine unto those to be of heavy hearts, let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Now, the use of this alcoholic beverage at this point is more of an anesthetic. It's a painkiller. You know, there was a day when we didn't have these high-priced anesthesiologists. By the way, they are very high-priced, aren't they? You know, they'd say, let me, get it, let me get that bullet out of your shoulder. Here, drink this. You know, <laughs> that was a painkiller. And uh, that's, when it was, that's what it was used. In our time, it's not necessary to do that. We have all kinds of painkillers today, probably more than we can, uh, can manage. But in our time, it would not be necessary to do this. We have many anesthetics uh, available for those who are dying. And then about the only thing available to the average person would have been some kind of alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant. It's not a stimulant, uh, as someone would think. After several drinks, one gets dizzy, and then eventually they pass out. But, so this passage is teaching alcoholic beverage will be only for a person that's ready to die. And there would be no hope for their life. And all that would be possible that would be to ease his pain, would be and to help forget his misery, would probably be some kind of an alcoholic wine. Now, there's another passage in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 11 that says, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that may follow strong drink, that continue until night till uh, wine inflame them. Now, obviously, this again is alcoholic because it inflames. Uh, what does he say? He says, woe unto them. Verse 12 answers, they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. You know, everyone knows that when one gives himself to drinking of alcoholic beverages, he will not be more spiritual. He will be more desirous of learning the word of God. No, to the contrary, a person uh, will ignore the Lord. In verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah chapter 5, it reveals two other serious re results. People go into captivity. They become slaves to something or to someone. And hell enlarges itself. The drinking of alcoholic wine has caused hell to be enlarged. God does not want anyone to go to hell. He has given the greatest, dearest gift that He could possibly give to rescue sinners from it. He never made hell for people. The Lord Jesus Christ said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And yet, because of evil alcohol, hell has an enlargement campaign. And here then is a clear warning against the drinking of alcohol because God does not want anyone to go to hell. In Isaiah 28, and verse 7 and 8, it says, it continues this warning, but they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They swallowed up of wine. They are, not, or they are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. 
for all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there's no place clean. What a tragic thing. Even in the day of, days of Isaiah, the priests and the prophets were engaged in the drinking of alcoholic wine. And so you see the problem of preachers recommending alcohol is not something new. And we have preachers that are doing that today. That say, oh, a little bit won't hurt you. It's okay. 600 years before Christ, demon alcohol had been working its way into religion even then. Then there's a fourth uh, principle here, and the making of alcoholic beverages is not strictly a natural process. It's not strictly a, a natural process. You know, I probably thought this, and maybe you thought this as well. At one time, you know, if you just took some juice from the grape and you let it alone, you don't refrigerate it, uh, then it's in, eventually in time it's going to turn into alcoholic wine. You know, there are several reasons that this is not true. It takes more than time to make wine. Sometimes people try to defend its use by saying, well, it must be good because God made it. You ever heard that one before? You know, God made it, so it must be okay. But the fact is, God did not make it. Man has learned how to make alcoholic liquors through the processes that he invented. Winemakers know that one must have the correct amount of water and sugar and temperature to make wine. And keeping grape juice in the refrigerator might prevent it from fermenting because the temperature is not right, but likewise, hot tropical temperature will prevent fermentation. You know, in the ancient days before we had refrigeration and we had vacuum seal, uh, sealing, uh, sealing ability, people learned to preserve the juice of the grape without turning it into alcoholic wine. Many people boiled it down into a thick syrup. And by doing so, they would preserve it for long periods of time. And then when they would get ready to drink it, they would simply add water to the, to the consistency desired. In much the same way that we'd take a frozen concentrated juice and add water to it today. And so in the Bible days, contrary to what many believe, it was not necessary for anyone to drink alcoholic wine as a table beverage. You know, someone say, well, they couldn't drink the water, so they had to drink the wine. No, that wasn't, that's just, that's not true. And then another point along this line is that making of alcoholic wine requires input from man. It requires the addition of certain additives, though it might be something as simple as sugar. And then also the control of temperature and so forth. The natural processes alone will produce fermentations under certain conditions, but these are natural processes. If unaided by man, rapidly move that grape juice to a vinegar state rather than to an alcoholic beverage state. The alcoholic beverage industry is very much a man-made thing. Natural processes are perverted by man. You know, it's interesting to note that some well-known men, what they've said about alcohol. Thomas Edison said about alcohol, to take alcohol into the body is putting sand on the bearing of an engine. It just doesn't belong in us. I have a better use for my brain than to poison it with alcohol. Abraham Lincoln said, liquor might have many defenders, but no defense. You see, half of the homicides and traffic deaths and one-third of all suicides are alcohol-related. 
And we could uh, take much more time talking about all the Scriptures that give the evil effects of wine, but we won't do that tonight. So let's get back to Noah. And let me suggest three things about Noah's behavior here. And I want us to first to think about how startling the fall of Noah. How startling the fall. You know, it's not unusual to hear about the fall of a preacher. It's with deep sadness that I remember some friends that I've had in the ministry that have fell into sin. In much the same way, when you read about Noah's sins, it knocks you for a loop. You think, what in the world? This is a man that walked with God. And then you come to verse 20 and 21, and you say, can't believe it. Noah blesses our hearts for several chapters and then breaks our heart when we come to this passage and we're left speechless. Now, so far, we've heard only good and positive things about Noah. You find yourself saying, I would have believed it if anyone, if been anyone but Noah. He's the last person you would have thought doing such a thing. You know, I think of a man by the name of Bobby Leach. Leach amazed the world by going over the Niagara Falls in a barrel without suffering a scratch. But later, while walking down the street, he slipped on an orange peel and badly fractured his leg. You see, Noah walked with God before the flood when everything was perverted and he fell after the flood when everything was clean. Everything had been purged. And how startling his fall. Noah reminds us of the danger we all face. When I think of the fall of a Christian, I think of, first of all, the delight it brings to a wicked society. The delight it brings to a wicked society. The prophet said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 14, How be it because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Now when the believer falls into sin, it always provides occasion for the unbelieving world to speak evil of Christians and of Christianity. The world delights to hear uh, such news. I think also, secondly, the discouragement it brings for the weaker brother. The discouragement it brings for the weaker brother. You know, the fall of a believer not only delights the wicked, but it discourages the weak. Young Christians are often devastated by the fall of someone they've loved and respected. I visited people that got out of church because of someone that fell into sin, such maybe as a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a youth worker. And when the large tree falls in the forest, the little trees are often crushed by the fall. How startling the fall of Noah. And then secondly, furthermore, I think of how suggestive the fall of Noah. How suggestive. Before we become a judge and jury of Noah, we should remind ourselves of what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if any man... Be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual. Restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know, the fall of a brother is not a matter uh, to triumph in or to talk about. But it's a matter to grieve over and be reminded that it could have been just as easily been us. You know, what are the lessons we can gain from the fall of Noah? Well, first of all, we can gain the lesson of we must be conscious of the potential sin. Uh, we uh, Conscious of the potential of sin. Uh, this is Noah. Uh, this is uh, not a sinner, but he's a saint. 
Now this is one of two men in the Bible in which it is said he walked with God. And furthermore, there was, uh, this is no novice. He's a man that walked for, with God for years. You know, there is no believer that's immune to sin. Any one of us could become a Noah. If a man like Noah, who found grace in the eyes of God, could fall, then any of us could fall. And like Noah, we could fall into immorality. We must never forget that in all of us, there is the potential to sin. There's nothing that any believer has been guilty of doing that we don't have the same potential of doing. We say, oh, I'd never do that. I'd never, I'd never get drunk and fall into immorality. Be careful. The potential's within us. Secondly, we need to be cautious of the power of sin. We must be cautious of the power of sin. One must wonder where Noah went wrong. Did he think after the flood there was nothing to fear? The sin around him had been destroyed and there was uh, still yet within him a sinful nature. We can never be careless. We must be always on our guard and we must guard our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and our desires. They must be mastered or they will master us. Paul knew that the flesh could be a wonderful slave, but it could be a terrible master. He never lost the fear of what could happen in his life if he did not guard his life. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. Now, did Noah think that he was too strong to fall? Did he momentarily forget God? After all these years, did he let down his guard? Well, one can only speculate. But in any case, he fell into sin. And we must ever live with the awareness of the potential that is in all of us and the power of sin. The potential to sin and the power of sin. Sin cannot be played with. It's like a fire that will eventually burn us. And so we notice here how startling the fall of Noah, how suggestive the fall of Noah, and then lastly, how serious the fall of Noah. Sin has its consequences. There's always a high cost to low living. First of all, I think of how it affects others. Again, we read here in verse 22, And Ham, uh, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Also, we go down to verse 25, and we read there, And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be uh, he be unto his brethren. The sin of Noah affected his children. They would bear the scars of that sin for the rest of their lives. As one has correctly stated, no man is an island. We do not and cannot live our lives without affecting others. A spiritual life will have a positive influence, but a sinful life can have a negative influence. You know, one can think of churches and ministries that have been devastated by the fall of a pastor. One can think of children that have been crushed by the sin of a father or a mother because sin always affects others. And then we also see it affects ourselves. Look down at verse 28 and 29. It says, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years 
And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. There is 300 more years of Noah's life found here in these uh, two verses. But how empty they are and how silent they are. We don't read too very, uh, very much about them. I'm sure God forgave Noah, but his good name was blotted and his testimony was blurred. I think of uh, back in September the 11th, 1985, when Pete Rose hit his 4,192 92nd uh, uh, career hit and broke Ty Cobb's long-standing record for most base hits. Uh, some of you might remember that game. Uh, if you were a baseball watcher back then, but I've never seen a Pete Rose fan, uh, but he was undoubtedly one of the best that ever played the game. I've never been a Pete Rose fan, I should say. Uh, there was a great emotion of that moment. It was one of those special moments in baseball. And there's no doubt it packed stadiums standing and cheering and he broke down on first base, but the glory of that moment was short-lived. Not long after that, he was banned from baseball. Because he bet on the games. It cost him his place in the Hall of Fame. But if he uh, ever would get back into the Hall of Fame, there'd always be a blot on his name and on his record. You know, we need to learn from Noah. He was a giant of the faith, but nonetheless, he fell. He went from faith to failure. If it could happen to Noah, it could certainly happen to us. I trust tonight as we, we think about Noah and about his failure that we'll determine in our hearts and our lives to, by God's grace, not to be a failure in our lives. Is it your desire to be faithful? I trust it is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the precious word of God tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Noah. Lord, he was a man who walked with you and he was faithful to you. And yet, there came a time when he fell. He fell into sin. He fell into that sin of, of drunkenness and immorality. And Lord, it's by your grace that it doesn't happen to, to one of us. And we pray that it doesn't. Lord, help us to be, remain faithful, to stay with your word, to obey it, uh, to read it, to study it, to live it. And we pray, Lord, that tonight... You'll challenge our hearts as we go out into this week ahead of us to stay faithful to you every, every single day. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to live for you in these days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your songbooks, if you will, and turn to number 312. 312, and I trust this is the prayer of your, your heart, is to be faithful. Let's stand and sing. I want to be faithful. Number 312.
Thank you. 